So we are in Romans 12 and 13 today. Turn to Romans 12, verse 31. That's where we'll begin. And I want to tell you about a place that I visited this last summer. There's a, there's a little island off the coast of England, just south of the border with Scotland. It's the, they call it Holy Island. Its real name is Lindisfarne. Um, but they call it, by the way, the Holy Island is only accessible by causeway. So if you want to get there, you drive this long bridge to the island and you have to know when the tide is coming in or out. Because if you try to cross the bridge when the tide is in, your, your, your car is going to get swept off into the North Sea. And every year, the, the Royal Coast Guard has to rescue some poor people, poor probably Americans, that are uh, floating in the North Sea. Uh, but that didn't happen to us, thankfully. When you get there, what you see is the remains of a monastery that was started in 634 AD by a, a, an Irish monk named Aidan. He came over from Ireland and founded the first outpost of Christianity in all of Britain. And uh, it, those missionaries, those monks, sent missionaries into the mainland of England and evangelized the country. They also copied the scriptures into the English language. The Lindisfarne Gospels that they translated, and, and they're very beautifully done, are in the British Museum today. They're one of the most priceless treasures in the world. Um, I want to show you a few pictures, just so you know I actually went there. Uh, the first picture you'll see, that's not actually the monastery. We're standing where the monastery was. That's a castle that was built in the 1500s to repel the sky but I just thought that was a pretty view. The next picture is what's left of the monastery. You see that arch? That's my, my daughter and me standing under the, the, they call it the rainbow arch that, that is left from that, that beautiful place. And the last picture, just for fun, my wife almost never takes selfies, uh, but she did this one, and she kept trying to get me to look up and smile, and I, I wouldn't, I, I didn't know she was doing that. And so when we, when we looked at the picture later, Kaylee said, hey dad, that's your old man face. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you can look in your face and see that you're thinking, I don't know what's going on, but I don't like it. So if I get to be pastor here as long as I want to, get used to that face because that's what you're going to see, um, you know, years to come. But what happened at Holy Island was after a, a century and a half, in the year 793, the Vikings invaded. And they found something that was... Uh, well, it was better than they possibly could have hoped because it was an island full of people who had gold, who had livestock, who had other treasures, but no weapons and no defense. And so they just murdered and pillaged to their heart's content. And then they went on to the mainland and raided the mainland of England. And then they came back years later and raided Holy Island again and again. And eventually the monks dug up the bones of St. Cuthbert, the, the monk who had made them famous, and carried them to the mainland and buried them at Durham, where they are to this day. Um, I, I, I tell you that story because last week in Romans 12, we saw... What it means for us to be living sacrifices, to truly devote ourselves completely to God. That's what we've been talking about since the first Sunday this year. To truly be living sacrifices in our relationships with people outside this church. It means our job is to spread peace, shalom. Our job is to bring peace to chaos, you might say. Our job is to love our enemies, to show kindness to those who hate us, to forgive, not hold grudges, not take vengeance on anybody. It means we do our best to live at peace with everybody we know. And if you were here last week and you heard that message, or maybe if you just heard what I said just now, 
There's a thought that pops into your mind that says, yeah, but then who's going to stand up to the bad guys? If, if we're going to be like the monks at Lindisfarne, who's going to stop the bad guys? Who's going to stop the Vikings from raiding? Wouldn't the people of England back then have been better, better off if the, if the island had been full of soldiers instead of monks? And we're going to talk today about how we resist evil and still obey Romans 12 how we still are faithful to the scriptures and are able to stand up to the bad guys. How does that work? That's what we want to talk about today. So we're going to start where we ended last week, which is Romans 12, verse 21. Did I say 31 earlier? 21. Yeah. Math is not my strong suit. So uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Last week we said that in our interpersonal relationships, that means that we don't fight back. We don't, we don't return evil for evil. We love our enemies. But I want you to know something, and you may not know this. Some of you do. The Bible was not written in chapters and verses. Human beings added that hundreds of years after the Bible was complete. They did it so we could pull out sections and, and preach on them and memorize them. And it's very useful, but there was never a time when the apostle Paul, for instance, said, Hey, um, Luke and Timothy and Phoebe and Priscilla, would y'all pray for me? Cause I'm working hard on Romans three, you know, r- verse 14 is giving me some trouble, right? No, Paul never said those words. He was just writing a letter to some friends. Now I believe he knew he was writing scripture. He knew what he was writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit as an apostle. And so people would be reading it for hundreds of years. But the reason why that's important to note is when we study the Bible, and I hope you do study the Bible for yourself, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking, okay, that chapter's over. So the next chapter must be about something completely different. And that's not always the case. And it's not the case here. Because I believe that, that Paul, when he says overcome evil with good, he's just getting started. And so the, the next 10 verses are his way of fleshing that out. He, he's already told us how we interpersonally should overcome evil with good. Now he's going to tell us how we as a society, as a community can come together to overcome evil with good, to resist evil. How does that work? Verse one of chapter 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now I'm going to, I'm going to say something right now that you might think, Oh, what difference does it make? But I, I think it makes a big difference. You can take that two, one of two ways. You, when it says that every authority has been instituted by God, you could believe that that means that every person who is a president, a governor, a mayor, a city council person, a police officer, they have been handpicked by God for that position of authority. Or you could believe God doesn't choose the people for those roles. God instituted government to begin with. God created the idea of human authority. Therefore, for instance, when we vote in elections, we're responsible for the leaders we have. God didn't put those specific people in office. We did through our vote, right? Now, I'll tell you why this is important. If you believe the first, that every person is handpicked for their role, that has significant implications. That means we don't have the right to criticize if the president, if the city council, if the Supreme Court does something we don't agree with. No, that's God's man. That's God's woman. Further than that, we don't have the right to exist as a country since our revolution was against 
in that view, a God-appointed king, King George III. You see? When Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we talked about the first sermon of this series, when he was part of the conspiracy to overthrow Hitler, he was in the wrong if that, if that interpretation is correct because God appointed Hitler as chancellor of Germany. You see, now I'm not saying, I'm not telling you you can't believe that. That's a legitimate way to interpret scripture. I just, I think you've got some problems if you do. What I think this is about is in the book of Judges, it says that in those days, Israel had no king and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so you had uh, murder and you had sexual assault and you had violence and you had injustice and all kinds of chaos. And so God says, I'm going to give you rulers to take care of all that. I'm going to create human governments who, who uphold the law and uphold justice and uphold peace and righteousness. And that's what they are for. Either way, he goes on in verse 3. He writes, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You might have heard that phrase, he does not bear the sword in vain. What does that mean? That is Paul saying that God has given human authorities, governments, the right to use force. In fact, the responsibility to use force to resist evil, to punish lawbreaking, to keep the peace. This is why there are police forces. This is why there are, uh, this is why there are armies and, and other armed forces. These things exist because God wants someone to resist evil. Now, that means that the, the commands we read last week about loving your enemies, about doing good to those who are mean to you, those apply to us as individuals. They don't apply to a society as a whole. So for instance, if there's a big crime wave in Montgomery County in the next few years, I'm not saying there's going to be, I hope there's not. But if there is, the Bible doesn't say that our leaders should then say, well, you know, since we're supposed to be good to those who are be mean to us, go ahead and take whatever you want. Criminals, come on up to Montgomery County and, you know, just take what you want. No, that's, that's not the place of government. That's not what they're for. If uh, an American military base or embassy is, is attacked overseas, our government shouldn't say, well, we don't believe in retribution. We'll, we'll just leave that up to God. No, God gave us the sword for retribution. The army at that point or the armed forces are seal team six is the sword of god bringing about his retribution on evil however hear me that doesn't mean that everything the authorities do is always right remember the man who wrote these words the apostle paul was beheaded by rome not long after he wrote this so he knew that governments don't always do right some rulers are evil some cops turn out to be corrupt. Some armies in the heat of battle, in the fog of war, commit atrocities that are an offense to God and man. And God will, will judge anyone who misuses the power they've been given. What should we do? If we believe our rulers are corrupt, if we believe uh, the people on the throne or in the White House or wherever are, are in the wrong, we'll get to that a, a little later in the message. But for now, just understand, Paul's not promising 
that as long as you obey the law and you're a good Christian, that you'll never have any problems with your authorities because he knows better. He's been beaten. He's been jailed unjustly. He knows that these things can happen. He's simply saying that we as Christians should be known as those who uphold the law. We should be known as the best citizens in our community. And we'll get to why in just a moment. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So this means that on April 15th, when you file your income tax, you should get down on your knees and praise God that you were able to obey his word. I'm just, I know you're not going to do that, but it is literally true that when you pay your tax, you're obeying God. And the reason for this, pay to all what is owed them, right? He's saying, let's be people that carry the weight, that are good, productive members of society. We don't want non-Christians to be able to look at us and say, well, they're not, they're a drag on us. No, we want to be a benefit, a blessing to our communities. So what does this all mean for us? How do we resist evil in this day, according to Scripture? First of all, we submit. You can see that from the Scriptures. It's very obvious. There's actually two other passages that say the same thing, and I'll get to those in just a moment. But there are three reasons in the Bible we're given to submit to our governing authorities. The first is because we want to avoid God's wrath. So if you break the law and you go to jail, or you have to pay a fine, that's the wrath of God. That is the literal wrath of God. You are under his wrath at that moment. We want to avoid that. Number two says, number two, verse five says that we should submit to the authorities for the sake of conscience, which I think simply means do it because in your heart, you know that's the right thing. You know that's what God wants you to do. But number three, the third reason is something you may never have considered. This is going to take some work on my behalf, so I hope I can explain this well. And y'all, you know, wake up your neighbor because this is, this is going to take some mind work, okay? So First uh, Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I said a moment ago there are other passages that talk about submission. This is one of them. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. So you get that, right? We're supposed to pray for our leaders. Even if we don't like them, even if we don't agree with them, we should lift them up to God by name, pray for their wisdom, pray for their physical protection, pray for courage for them to do what's right. All right, we got that. Then it says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the, the goal is that we would live lives that are respectable. When it says dignified, it doesn't mean well-dressed and well-mannered. It means respectable. It means people look at us and say, okay, that they, they're living right. Here's the part that's confusing. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wait a second. How does me praying for my rulers and obeying the law help people come to know Christ? Help people get saved? What does that have to do with evangelism? Well, I think to get there, you have to also read the third passage in Scripture that talks about this subject, and that's 1 Peter 2, 13-15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing, by, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is Peter saying? He's saying, 
Right now, in the Roman Empire, the gospel's spreading. People are getting saved. And non-Christian Romans are getting nervous because they're saying, what's going to happen when these people overtake us? Because they don't worship our gods and they don't believe what we believe about sexuality and about money and about, well, basically anything. And so they're going to fundamentally change our society. We need to stop this. And it was resulting in persecution. And so Peter is saying, let's make sure that we are such good citizens, so on the right side of the law and so respectful to those in authority over us, even if they don't deserve that. We, we don't necessarily have to respect the person, but respect the office. We were so, so faithful to pray for them, such a blessing to society that it removes any barrier to anybody coming to know Christ as their savior. That's how our submission leads to salvation for others is we are concerned not for our reputation, but for the reputation of Jesus. And so we want to live in such a way there is no excuse that anybody has to not hear the good news. Now, one more question before we get to the next point. Is there ever a time not to submit? Is there ever a time when we intentionally disobey the law and still are in God's favor, still are in God's will? And the answer is yes. In Acts 5, we see it. In Acts 5, we see the apostles of Jesus. Jesus is already ascended into heaven, but they're preaching the gospel and the gospel spreading. And, and the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of Israel, 70 men, they bring the apostles before them. Now, Jesus had said in Matthew 23, listen, they sit on the seat of Moses, so you must do what they say. So they are in authority. These men say to the apostles, you must stop preaching in the name of Jesus or we're going to kill you. The apostles do not therefore say, well, you're our governing authority. We have to do what you say. I guess Christianity has, has won its last convert. No, they say in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And there's your line. That's how you know when it's okay to break the law. Notice I didn't say, if you're late, it's okay to speed by 25 miles an hour. I didn't say that. I didn't say, if the law is inconvenient, or if the law is something you don't necessarily agree with, or if the ruler is somebody you didn't vote for, or you don't like, or you don't approve of. No, the, the line is, when it comes down to, I can obey the law, I can respect the ruler, I can, I can uphold the government, or I can obey God, but I can't do both. In that case, you always have to choose God's will. And you face the consequences, and that's why persecution happens. And there are still Christians in our world being persecuted today. So that's your line. We submit, and therefore we resist evil until we have to choose the will of God over the will of our governing authorities. Second way we resist evil is we serve. We don't just submit, we serve. Some of us are called to serve in law enforcement. There are people in this room who are serving in law enforcement. There are people in this room who have served our nation in their armed forces every year at, at Veterans Day. I mean, tons of people stand up to say, I've served our country. Some of you are currently active duty and others are going into the military and we salute you, we thank you for that. There are people in this church in the past who have, who have uh, held elected office or run for elected office. There are people in our church right now that are running for local offices. And that's good. You know, it wasn't 
a thing when the Bible was being written. That's why this isn't directly addressed. There were no Christian senators in Rome. There certainly wasn't a Christian Caesar. Uh, There weren't any Christian uh, police officers, and there were very few Christians in the military. Cornelius, you can name one. Maybe there was a handful of others. Most Christians were just regular folks. But then along comes Emperor Constantine, and he professes Christ, And in 314 AD, he makes Christianity legal and legitimate. And all of a sudden, everything turned around. All of a sudden, it became advantageous socially and politically to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Before, it would have gotten you killed. Now it gets you elected. Now it gives you a leg up in society. And so that was both good and bad for the faith. There was a lot less persecution. But then you didn't necessarily know if someone was professing Christ to get a leg up or because they were really following him. Today, again, like I said, it is common to see Christians in all these fields, these fields of authority, especially in our country, and there is good news and bad news to that. I know we don't talk, I know you say, hey, we're not supposed to talk about politics. I'm about to talk about politics, okay? So y'all get ready. These are not things we talk about often enough. So let me just say this. The bad news is when a Christian who is in a position of authority, stumbles, fails to act like Jesus, their sin is not worse than my sin, but the impact it makes on society is far greater. Their sin is not worse than your sin, but the the disgrace it brings on the name of Jesus for a president, for a senator, for a police chief, or a sheriff, for anybody in authority who claims the name of Christ to publicly live in a way that is opposite of Jesus does more harm to the cause of Christ in public than if a school teacher or a housewife or an attorney or a construction foreman or any other citizen does it. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of, of responsibility you have when you're in one of these positions of authority. I'll go further than that. If you talk to young adults today who are struggling with their faith, I think we all know that's a common thing. People who grow up in church and then later they wrestle with, do I still believe this or not? And I think one of the parts, one of the things that's hurting them, one of the things that's causing them to struggle is they see so many Christians in high position who act completely opposite Jesus. And instead of us holding them accountable, we say, no, no, but they're on our side in our fight against the forces of godlessness. So we have to support them. We can't, we can't speak out against them. And, and, and young adults and teenagers see the hypocrisy in that. And they don't want any part of it. So, if you are a Christian who is in one of these positions, you have my prayers. You have a lot of responsibility. Your first priority is to live like Jesus to obey Romans 12, to be a living sacrifice to him, to glorify him. And yes, sometimes that's going to mean because your opponent isn't acting that way, maybe he gets ahead. Maybe you lose the election. I would rather you lose and glorify God than compromise and do things the world's way for the sake of gaining elected power. And if I can be so bold, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the last 25 years, is every passing year we compromise more and more with the world's way of doing political power. Now that's the bad news. The good news is 
that when a Christian man or woman is in a position of authority, they can do an immense amount of good because the Lord gives us, when we ask for it, wisdom, courage, compassion, righteousness. Armed with the the fruits of the Spirit, a a Christian in a position of authority can do an immense amount of good, can, can bring, in essence, a taste of the kingdom of God into government. You think we need more of that? I think so. So don't let anything I said just now discourage you if you feel called to run for office, if you feel called to serve in the military or in the, or in the law enforcement field, because we need people who serve the Lord and who serve our community in that way. And we as God's people should pray for them and encourage them whenever we can. I know some of these people who are serving locally in these ways, and I'm proud of them, and I'm excited about what they do. And I want them to know we have... They have our support, all right? We submit and we serve, but third, we love. And this is the most important part. So you might be sitting there thinking, and I know some of you are because this is the way we think. Okay, Jeff, we submit and we don't take the law into our own hands, but is there ever a time when I, as a non-police officer, non-soldier, non-military person, is there ever a time when I have the right to use force to resist evil? Can I ever take the law into my own hands? And my answer is yes, but. Now, let me tell you what yes, but means. Verses 8 through 10. We're back in chapter 13 now, Romans 13, where we started. Verses 8 through 10 says, Owe nothing to anyone. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul brings us right back to where he started. And remember, when he talks about love being the highest law, he's not talking about the way you feel. He's talking about what you do. You can love someone who you don't find likable. Although, like I said a few weeks ago, you love someone long enough, you'll start to see them through God's eyes. But it's not about our feelings. It's about our actions. So, uh, in other words, yes, it is right sometimes to use force personally, even if you're not part of the governing authorities, but only when you're motivated by love. Let me tell you why I say that. Some of you remember the name Todd Beamer. If you're old enough, if you remember 9-11, September 11th, 2001, uh, Todd Beamer was a passenger on United Flight 93. So that's the plane that went down in Pennsylvania in a rural area. Um, We know about what happened on that flight primarily because Todd Beamer managed to get a call out from the flight to an operator on the ground. And there's no transcript of the call. There's there's a transcript floating around on the internet that's not legitimate because the flight, the, the call wasn't recorded. But I've seen interviews with the woman he talked to. Here's what she says. She said that he called and said, they've taken over our flight. They've killed the flight crew. They're in the cabin. They're in control. We don't know where we're going, but we've heard what's happened to these other planes. So we're planning to storm the cockpit and take over the plane. None of us know how to fly, so we're just going to crash the plane because we don't want them to use this plane for what the other planes were used for. 
He then said, this is my wife's name. I want you to call her and tell her you talk to me and tell her that I love her, that 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 I'll miss her and I'll see her in heaven. And then he said, will you pray with me? And together they recited the Lord's prayer. And after they said, amen, he said, let's roll. And he hung up. And they took over the plane and they crashed the plane and they saved hundreds, maybe thousands of lives. Now, Todd Beamer wasn't in the military. He wasn't a a police officer. He was a guy who sold software, played softball and taught Sunday school. He wasn't doing anything for himself. He and the others on the flight, they knew they couldn't save their own lives. They did what they did, motivated by love. They took action, they took tremendous courage to save the lives of others who they would never meet. Hopefully you'll never be in a situation exactly like that, but you might be in other situations in which that kind of love is required. Many of our students are here this morning. Sometimes you'll have the opportunity to confront a bully, to stand between a bully and the person that person is trying to get to or hurt, and that's dangerous. You could get hurt yourself, but that's what love does. Someday we might have the opportunity to stand between uh, an abusive boyfriend or husband and the woman that they are abusing. That must be done. It's dangerous, but that's what love does. You might have to stand between your family or other loved one and somebody who wants to harm them. That is good. That is godly. That is motivated by love. What it doesn't cover is this guy cut me off. I'm going to cut him off and run him off the road and punch his lights out. This does not cover, this guy insulted me. This woman said these things about me. I'm going to make her life miserable. That's not what this covers. We make all kinds of excuses for reasons we feel we're justified in getting aggressive with someone else. I'll tell you one other thing it does cover, I believe, and that is defending our own selves from physical harm. Now you might say, well, well, Jeff, doesn't it say in the scriptures to turn the other cheek? Yes, it does. When you read Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. That's not about physical harm. If you've, if you've been slapped in the face, you have not been injured, okay? You've been insulted. Slapping somebody is not the way to win a fight. It's the way to start a fight. Jesus was saying, bear every insult from me. Don't worry about your reputation. But in Ephesians 5, 28 through 29, it says that God expects us to love our own bodies, to care for and protect them. And so, yes, I think you're justified if you think that, that you're going to be physically harmed to defend yourself by whatever means are necessary. But again, hear me. Sometimes love means fighting, but rarely is our fighting motivated by love. Can we agree on that? Usually it's motivated by Wounded pride and inconvenience. Selfishness, in essence. So the examples I've given of when love justifies using force, they're rare in most people's lives. Some of you may live your whole life and never have a situation where love calls on you to take physical action. But someday we'll all stand before the Lord. Every single one of us are going to stand in judgment before Jesus Christ, the King. And on that day, we won't be proud of any of those times we stood up for ourselves because all that will matter on that day is that Jesus stood up for us.
because he stood in our place, because he stood between us and death, us and hell, us and judgment, laid down his life on the cross so we could go free, so we could enter his family, so we could be redeemed. That's the story. That's the only thing that will matter on that day and for all eternity. And if we lay down our lives for him as living sacrifices like we're called to do, that means we're going to focus our lives on loving him and loving others, period. Now, I started the sermon by telling you about the monks on Holy Island, and I, I said, wouldn't it have been better for England if they'd been soldiers instead of monks? And the truth is, no, that's actually not true. Because here's the thing. Those monks brought the Christian faith to England 1,400 years ago. Now, I personally am two-thirds English in blood. Thanks to a DNA test, I now know that. Um, many of you have some English heritage. If so, in part, at least in part, you owe your faith to those monks. Even if you don't have any English blood at all, and, and many of you don't, England, during the 1700s and 1800s, that was the country that sent missionaries to all the world. The gospel spread through English Christians. So you could say that those monks, we owe a debt, to, all of us owe a debt to them for our faith today. So think about this. Because of them, millions of people escaped sin and misery and death and an eternity separated from God. I would say that's the ultimate in resisting evil.